0: To live is, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain, the Apostle Paul. As part of the thing that I'm trying to ascertain in my own life and in the life of the church, and in this company that I'm, I'm helping to put a culture into a company that's just formed, I believe that it's important to have a mission statement as a company, as a church, And as a believer, because without a mission statement, we tend to do many things that don't help us get to where we want to go because we lack vision. The scripture says that uh, without vision, uh, people perish. We might be doing a lot of things and we might be doing a lot of things really well, but uh, without vision, we are not getting anywhere. So we're not reaching the destination because we don't know where we're going. We become expert at our surrounding and we're making our surrounding bigger because we are clearing out more trees, kind of use an illustration, but we're only clearing a bigger area, but we're not getting to where we need to go. So um, What is a Christian's mission in life and what is the thesis that defines where you are heading and what you want to do? Let's look at Paul's Joshua. He said, as for me in my house, he has a very clear mission. Of course, for him, it was getting to promised land. But then, then what? You're going to sit there and drink milk and eat honey for the rest of your life? W- what is the mission in your life? And do we have one? Or is it only I try to make it to church one or twice a week and, and, and then what? Where do we want to go? What is our, our mission? And the Apostle Paul put it succinctly in four words. For me, to live is Christ. And let's examine what that means to him and how we could use that in our own lives as a mission statement. And I say, if you don't have one, this is the great one to plagiarize from the great Apostle. For me to live is Christ. I'm fine with that. And I think that is the perfect encapsulation of a Christian mission statement. Now, what does he mean by to live is Christ? The foundation of establishing a divine purpose in a person's life has to be divine. What it means is that the subject, not the object, or not only the object of Paul's mission is a person. And we try to repeat that because our brain tends to to shut down when we listen to people we think are telling us the answer. I'm not telling you the answer. I'm giving you what the Apostle Paul is saying that we need to think about. The mission or Paul's mission, Paul's purpose in life is not a destination. It is not an object. It is a person. So he says his mission in, in life is a person and that person is Christ. So he's not, he not saying, here's the map, if the Bible is the map, and X mark the spot. What he's saying is that this destination or this X is a person. He's not in a specific location. He's a person that we need to observe, we need to watch, and we need to follow. It is not a destination per se, but being with Christ is and always will be your destination. And that's what the apostle Paul is saying. For to me to live is Christ. Now I'm gonna attempt through the word of the apostle to define the meaning of life. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear. So What is the meaning of life? The meaning of life to the Apostle Paul is Christ. That is the meaning of life. So if you're searching for the meaning of life, it's one word, Christ. That is the meaning of life. And man's search for meaning must begin and end with Christ, for he is the Prince of life. The Apostle Peter says, you kill the Prince of life. And therefore, for all of man's history, from the time that Christ came, we killed him, and now we don't know what the meaning of life is. And therefore, people make a lot of money writing books on the theory and meaning of life because we went ahead and killed the Prince of Life, and now we don't know what the meaning of life is. And that's what the Apostle Peter was saying. You, God gave us, he gave us this life in the flesh, and we went and killed him. And now we don't know what it is. The Apostle Paul brings it all back to the church and to the Christian and that's our purpose, to tell people that life's meaning is embodied in Christ and that is the meaning of life. To live as Christ means Christ is the source of life. Christ gives meaning to life. Not only he is the source of life, but he also is the definition of what life is and he gives us the meaning to life. And Christ is the life himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ not only embodies life, but he is the life, and he gives meaning to life. Secondly, Christ gives us the tools, as it is, or Christ is the faculty in which we can perceive, or we can recognize, and we can live with the definition of life. And in 1 Corinthians 1.30, In Christ Jesus is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The word that you should emphasize here is in Christ. The tools that we need to facilitate life or to live is in Christ. And he gave us these four things that we need. What is it that God has endowed to us through Christ that necessitate living in Christ? First of all, it is wisdom, The beginning of our pursuit is not information, it is knowledge. We are living in a knowledge economy, but an information age. What does that mean? It means that the uh, information is abundant. If you want to know, you can ask Siri, you can ask Google, anything except religion, of course. And then they will give you because religion is difficult for a machine to tell you information-wise But you can find out where Jesus was or what the timeline for the Apollo 13 launch, or what happened to it You can find all that information by just search online or ask AI The economy that deals with information is knowledge So the more abundant the information is, the less knowledge people would consume The problem is, there is an overabundance of information and it becomes harder and harder to figure out how to extrapolate knowledge out of all that information. We are faced, especially today, with this arrogance of having a lot of information but then they are trapped in this mindset of thinking that they know a lot. They have access to a lot of information, but they don't know very much. It's too much information. And in fact, the opposite is true because the accessibility to information is so readily available, you tend not to remember anything anymore. Such as, can you remember your mom's phone number? Why should I? You know, the phone does that for me. Christ in us. He gives us this fundamental tool that we need that is wisdom, or to put it another way, knowledge. And the knowledge is to understand the thought of God. When you go to school, you're given a book, and that book has all the information. But then you need someone to teach you to extrapolate the knowledge from the book And that is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Wisdom is to be able to extrapolate what God has given to us through His Word. And then it becomes part of our being, the knowledge and the wisdom of God. Secondly, Christ gave us righteousness. Righteousness is the character of a Christian. The Christian is defined by Christ, not by the sum of the choices of our action. It is who we are, is who Christ deem us to be, not because of what we have done, or that we have studied in this seminary, or we went through all of these experiences that defined and caused us to be called righteous. But it's because what Christ has deemed that we are righteous. Christ's righteousness authorizes the Christian to execute God's intention without the law's reprisal because we are called righteous, not because of those things that we do. On the contrary, because we are called righteous, those things that we do are deemed right. Does that make sense? Pastor Joshua talks about the officer. When he puts on that uniform, he immediately has the authority to rescue. For us, when we clothe with Christ's righteousness, we have the authority to execute God's will irrespective to what the law say, because we are empowered and we are covered in Christ's righteousness. For example, Christ's disciples, when they went through the cornfield, they could pick the corn and eat it, even though it was on the Sabbath. Jesus was asked by the Pharisees why are your disciples break the law. And Jesus' response to them was, they are in the temple. Christ is greater than the temple. What does that mean? It means that they are clothed in His righteousness. Anything they do is covered. They are exempt from the law. Christ imparts to us in this life His righteousness. Does it give us a license to sin? It does. The police, when he's in the patrol car, can he speed? Does he violate and break the law when he speeds? He doesn't. Does the righteousness of Christ give us a license to sin? It does. It does in a way that you can think of from a human's perspective, but it doesn't in a way that the power of God rests in us that would not allow us to sin. So that is the differentiator. The third thing is sanctification. The process or the progress of change in the Christian confirms the continuous work of the Holy Spirit, refining the Christian into the image of Christ. Sanctification, the sanctification process will take you from here to where Christ is. And that is hope. So we are born naked and we are born hungry and we are born dependent on people. And as we grow up, we become independent shifting our lives and our proclivities toward Christ. And then once we move and mature beyond independence and interdependence, as in the church, we begin to care and love other people, we move closer and toward Christ, and that is sanctification. And the last thing is redemption. The final journey of the Christian is the place where all pursuits end leads to everlasting life with Christ. The mission succeeds not with the Christian arrival, but all those who reach the shores of eternity with him. The final pursuit or the final destination of life is that we come to see Christ, who he is, as he sees us, like the Apostle Paul says. Now I see in the mirror, darkly, it's dim, it's difficult for me to figure out. But then, that word then, then is when we get to The end of redemption Then then our faith is no longer necessary Because we see him as he sees us Faith is no longer needed when you can see Then is our finality The joy of redemption is not our own salvation The joy of redemption is all of the work That we have done in the name of Jesus Christ That bring all the people around us And to meet all together there with Christ and that is the joy in the destination. And that is why the Apostle Paul says, to die is gain. That is the second part of his mission, destination. Right now, he's labor, he's in pain. He's saying, I'm, I travail in birth pain to see Christ form in you. And then he says, but when I die, when this fi- the finality of this flesh is over, I will be there and you will be there and my joy will be made perfect. And that's what he's saying. That is redemption. Redemption is all of this work, even though, even though all of those things that we see, I've spent so much time with this person and they turn their back on me. I spend so much time with that person teaching and keep buying books and then they keep losing books. And I thought, oh man, when is this going to, when are they going to grow up? Um, Redemption is when we see all of that Because Jesus promised that all things work together For the good of those who love him And are called for his purpose That is redemption That is when we can see Yeah, despite how I feel All of the work that I do today Will not go to waste I will see the end result of it Then the redemption comes When you see all of those things That God has promised Will come to fruition at the end and that is what redemption is. The third aspect of Christ as our mission is he is actually the power that allows us to live. In Galatians 2.20, nevertheless, I live. And then the Apostle Paul said, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The Apostle Paul punctuated this mission statement by saying, in fact, the life that I'm living is not me. It's not by my own Ability or power It is actually Christ in me The hope of glory Christ in me is the power That caused me to live fully for him God did not only equip us with the meaning With the tools necessary But he also gave us the power to live it All encompassed in this one person The Lord Jesus Christ The apostle made it clear The life force that is in him Is not him is Christ. The Christian is the mere vessel that is continuously adjusting and yielding to the power that is within. That is who we are. We might be a vessel that is unfit for glory, but God is shaping this vessel into a a vessel that's able to be driven by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. To live is two things. Number one, to forsake. Uh, I, I read from bottom, bottom up and right to left. And, and secondly, to focus, <laughs> to forsake. All things are lawful. 1 Corinthians 6.12. It's not in there. You can write it down. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, meaning when you are clothed in Christ's righteousness, all things are lawful. But I will not be brought under the power of any So what does what the Apostle Paul meant to say here is that We take time for granted because it is constantly available You realize that we can accumulate everything in life With exception to one And that is time You cannot accumulate time You cannot have more time Time is constant. You are on it. You don't own it. Because we tend to value unimportant things at the expense of time because we think we have more time. Even in our vernacular, we say, let me think about it when I have more time. That's impossible. You will never have more time. You cannot accumulate time to have more time. You are on time or you're off time. But time is something that is more valuable than anything else like money. Money you can have more of, you cannot have more time. Everyone uh, has a fixed measure of time and then we all expire. Cannot accumulate more. If you defer to do something, you already waste time because you touch it twice or multiple times. For example, you see the email coming you open that email and you say, I will respond to this later. you handle it twice. You waste your initial time of handling that piece of information. So rather, what I do is that I won't open it. I only open it when I am going to respond to it or I'll just delete it without handling it. It teaches you to place time more important than that piece of email that comes in. It, when we think about time, when we think about how valuable time is, we will shape our life in accordance to the value of time that's been given to us. And that's what the Apostle Paul says. He said, I'm allowed to do anything. I'm free to do anything. But I would not have those things dictate how I live my life but I will not be brought under the power of any. If we see it in the perspective of the Apostle Paul, time is something that we cannot control, that we're only borrowing it, and the minute that was passed, we can't have it again. Then it's time to do the only thing that we can with time, and that is to get rid of things, to forsake things. If you want to follow me, here are the list of things that you should forsake. These things will consume your time. These things will take up space in your life and thus time in your life and which you don't have as much as you think you do. So it's time to get rid of things. It's time to forsake things. And what are those things that you should think about forsaking? Number one, the world. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified the world and all that it has to offer us, let's forsake it. Those things are not important. If today's trend, which is becoming more trendy nowadays, if you're on Facebook, you see those trending topics. If you're on Twitter, you see those trendy hashtags. If you're on even Google, this trendy news because it wants to take up your time. The world wants you to invest in all these things and all those things that it brings into the forefront of your consciousness. And we need to say, no. We say no to the world. The world is crucified unto me. The heavenly man ministers in the world, but does not submit himself to it. We are in the world. We are subject to it, but we are not enslaved to it. It will not dictate where we go, what we do, and our actions. The Lord says that you are in the world, but you're not of the world. Distance yourself from its lure, set your affections on things above. Secondly, we should forsake sin. Romans 6.6 6 says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Henceforth, we should not serve sin. Serving sin is you know that is sin and you continue to engage in it. Committing sin, you might fall, you might not overcome certain temptation, and you get yourself up, you brush yourself off, you say, okay, I'm going to turn my life around. But if you continue to engage and dwell and revel in it, it is something that we need to begin to say no to. Forsaking sin, we always struggle with sin, but we should never submit to it. Forsaken sin by not choose to serve it. Affections and lusts. Lust is that thing that when in the end give birth to sin. Galatians 5:24, when they that are Christ have crucified the flesh and the affections um, with the affections and lusts, crucifying it by denying its power to control you. Yes, we all feel lust. We see something, we turn our head toward it, and we start thinking about it. At the moment that you begin to plan and strategize to get it, you should stop there and say, to stop it, to stop lust, affection for those things that will control us. Forsaking lust by practice fasting, discipline, learning to control your desires. And that's where fasting comes in when you say no to the flesh. When you discipline your life Being conscious of those things that we are subconsciously finding ourselves doing For example, if someone's shouting at you Your natural tendency is to pull up your defenses and shout back But if we practice to discipline and to listen and to understand the voice that behind the anger We might be able to control not just ourselves but the person And help the person see the truth Forsaking the self. Then Jesus says unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. So self-denial is the obedience to God's will. Two opposing forces in in our lives. One is our own will and the other is God's. Self-denial is basically say, I will not do what I want to do, I will do what God wants to do. And what does God wants to do? Detailed in His commandment and His charge for us. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creatures. The more obedient you become to God, the less you will fulfill your own will. The heart of God is that we would not submit to our own will, desires, and proclivities. That we will hold on to what God says in spite of those things that might injure us. Forsaking the same to follow Christ. You are no longer in control of the destination. When the disciple says, Lord, let us make you a tent for Moses and for Elijah and for you. And then there's a voice from heaven. Listen to my beloved son. Yielding all of our actions and thoughts and proclivities to the obedience of Christ. Lastly, we should forsake everything. Make it simple. Let's forsake everything. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.8, Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. <clears throat> to fulfill life's purpose, you must forsake all things. Ultimately, it is easier just to, just to lump everything together into one. It doesn't matter in the scope of eternity. This is the key to happiness. You might not think so. To peace and to joy and to happiness. When we are able and possess the ability to forsake anything. Let me tell you a few experiences I have. I created many projects. And some of the projects are big projects and some of the projects are little projects. And in the beginning, I hold on to everything because I spent so much time, effort, money, resources, creating a lot of things. And then they live past their usefulness, what I do now. In the past, I spent more time and energy maintaining those things that are useless. Until one day, I decided, you know what? I'm just gonna give it up. I'm gonna shut it down. And when I start practicing, Shedding down forsaking those things that had tremendous monetary or psychological or even emotional value I'm free. I'm more happy. I have more peace in my life because those things don't have a hold on me The Apostle Paul actually telling us the key to living this mission that is Christ is to forsake everything except for one and that is the Lord Jesus Christ Everything else when compared to Christ is pale. And he said this, this is why I love the King James. He said, I count all but dung. I count it all but dung. Really, if you don't have it, just get the King James with this one verse. That I may win Christ. In the light of Christ, everything else is just dung. Everything else is rubbish. Everything else is just trash. And if we learn to forsake all things, one of the hardest things for me to forsake is relationships. Relationship is hard to forsake. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, forsake your family, your wife, your husband, your brothers, your sister, and even yourself. So there you go. I was reprimanded uh, the other day when I preached that message and someone said, no, that is dishonoring parents if you forsake them. Well, it was apparent. told me that through proxy. Tell me directly. But I told through proxy to him. That's not what I say. That's what Jesus said. Things we're unhappy about because it rubs against our emotion or it rubs against our culture. People did not like what he said, but they knew that he had life. They knew he had power. And the life that he lived, the life that all those that follow him led, showed us that the life that's worth living is a life that complete obedience to Christ. If you want to be like the Apostle Paul, have his mission statement, and have his life, and have his tendency and proclivities, and then you will live a life that is like him. He has everything, but he said, I will not be brought under the authority of any. He can do all things. I will choose to submit myself lead to Christ. Second part of to live is to focus. One of the biggest time waster is multitasking. Our brain deceive us into thinking that we're accomplishing more by doing many things simultaneously. It gives us this impression or actually, it gives us this stimuli that causes us to think that, oh, we are doing a lot of things and therefore we must be very productive, but it's a lie. That is how you end up doing many things and completing nothing. We should learn to focus. All of the great people and character in history, they focus on one thing, Isaac Newton. He locked himself up. He forget to change. He forget to eat. He forget to brush. Nikola Tesla. He has a lot of ideas. But he was focused on just one thing. Being great inventor. In fact, he was so full of himself, he signed his name GI. It stands for great inventor. His life is focused on one thing. Invention. To his detriment. His lab blew up, he made a new lab. He continued to invent. People left him, he didn't even know they left him. He thinks they're still working for him. He was just focused on one thing. The Apostle Paul, but this one thing I do, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, just this one thing, this one thing I do, and what is that one thing I do? For me, to live is Christ. That's one thing, this is why I live, this is what I do. John Calvin. This one thing I do: this word will be preached, will be disseminated. People would know the word of God, and I'm the person live my life. at the end of his life. He was so sick because he would lock himself. He wouldn't do anything. All he does is study and then preach. And they had to carry him to the pulpit on the stretcher and he preached. And then they carry him from the pulpit back into his home. So he continued to study because he has no more strength to walk. But this one thing he does, preach, teach. He does it every day until he died. This one thing, focus. You see, all the people who had a single focus in life accomplished great many things. God is the primary focus. John 17:3 says, "This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God. God we must know. Without the knowledge of God, we cannot begin. We can learn to preach the gospel, we can learn to read the Bible really well, but until we know God, we cannot begin. Secondly. Focus on eternal life. Not this temporal life that we live and amassing ourselves with fame and glory and money. Those things don't matter. Eternal life is what we should focus on. He that loves his life shall lose it. And he that hates his life in this world shall keep it. Eternal life is what we trade this life for. So your life is a vessel to enable souls to pass through it into eternity. That's what you should be focusing on. So if God is the beginning of knowledge and understanding, then eternal life is where we are heading. And that's where we are leading people to focus on the truth. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3:1, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Truth is something that we must hold on to. And what is truth? Truth is the word of God. This should always be a constant daily staple of our life. Without the word, without the truth, we don't have the tool to be focused. So the word of God shapes, the word of God is like a magnifying glass. If God is the ray, then the Word of God helps to focus that ray into one point. And that is the truth. Having the Word of God or having the abundance of the Word of God is like having this giant, powerful, magnifying glass that you can channel God's knowledge and will through so that the outcome of it will be this powerful beam that goes into the lives, that shines that light into people's hearts and the darkness within each one of us. Focus on the cross. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The cross. Because we need that cross here to focus. When Jesus was passing through Samaria, that he has his face fixed on Jerusalem. And what was at Jerusalem? It was the cross. Of course, the cross was not there. It was not erected until he was crucified. But his mind and his life was directed toward the cross. That is the end. And what is the cross for us? The cross is our end. We will not pass from this life to the next life without death. Burton says life is only a vestibule that covers death. I'm not putting it verbatim, but we pass on to this life to the end and that is the cross, our own cross. So focus on the cross. None of us will escape the cross. And when we embrace the cross, everything else seemed but trivial. Focus on boldness. You have the cross, you know that death is that gate that leads to everlasting life. Now you have boldness, like the Apostle Peter, when he was captured, he said, you threatened to kill me, but I'm dead anyways. So should I listen to you or should I listen to God? There's a boldness when you know where you're going. There's a boldness when you know that death is something that you already embrace. So what can you do? Kill me? It doesn't matter because I already embraced death. So there is the boldness. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, according to the earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always now unto Christ, shall be magnified in my body, whether it be life or by death. So what? I already embraced death. If you remember, he was afraid. Now, you have to read between the lines to know that he was afraid when he was in Jerusalem, that there were 40 people, shaved their heads, planned, when Paul was brought out and shipped to Rome, they were going to kill him. They vowed to each other, they would not eat anything until they kill Paul. That night, Jesus came, appeared to him in a dream and said, Paul, don't worry, you will go to Rome. But if you read between the lines, What that means to Paul is, you won't die now, you just die later. Not here in Jerusalem, you die in Rome. But don't worry, you still fulfill your mission. Christ will be preached. So Paul embraced that. Fear is a part of us, but boldness can be there with fear as well. It doesn't have to nullify fear, but it should embolden us to live for Christ. Therefore, my beloved, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now you have the boldness to know that everything that you do in the name of Jesus Christ, everything that you do as it pertains to this mission that is Christ, it is not in vain. None of it is in vain. The suffering that you go through is not in vain. The labors you go through is not in vain. People are yelling, screaming, even throwing you in jail, if that's even possible here yet in America, is not in vain. I was asked an interesting question Why did God cause Paul to be captured? And put in prison that when he had to write that letter to uh, the Thessalonians he said I desire I wish to be with you twice now and I can't why couldn't God just allow him to go to Thessalonica and be there with people wouldn't that be great that would be for Paul but not for you because he wrote two letters And that's the only thing that we have, his thoughts, the gospel. So the fact that he was thrown in jail gave us those two epistles. That's the mind of God. Nothing is in vain. All those things that you go through right now, you hate it, it's not in vain. It's for the purposes of God. So embrace it with boldness and service. Do all those things and do it all over again. And Paul says, if it's possible, I would lay down my life for you over again. or oh, foolish Galatians. He would do it all over again because none of those things is in vain. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Make sure the work of the Lord is never is in vain. To emphasize the need to constantly engaging in kingdom's work. Father, we thank you and I thank you that your word has enabled us to see clearly through the life of the Apostle Paul. He was singly focused on you. <laughs> And that his life today, in more than 2,000 years later, we're still learning from. God, I, I pray that each one of us will live a life. Each one of us would have a mission. Each one of us would see in a vision what you have ordained for us and for our lives. I know you said that greater things, greater things, that you have purposed our lives to be for your kingdom. So I pray that we would live our lives In obedience to you And see that none of the work that's done For the purpose of the kingdom will be in vain And in the end, Lord, like the Apostle Paul says To die is to gain We will see you We will see all of those things that we have labored Will not be in vain We'll come to see where it fits in the greatness of your master plan in the end and that many people, many souls that we thought even today that we'll never see them, they will be there they will be there, that we'll be astounded and surprised and even, and, and of course glad Lord to see our labor, the work that we do in your name will never be in the bank. So help us Lord to focus, help us To forsake those things that are unnecessary and eat up time. Help us to become obedient, singly focused in our vision and in our work for you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.